0: So we are uh, we are in a series looking at the economy. Alice started last week and she's she's actually going to be talking again about the same thing. She's going to do it again. Partly because we want everyone in the church to hear the message, partly because we want to make sure it's uh, recorded and it's such a good foundation we want to go again. So if you heard it last week, keep your ears tuned because you'll hear something you'll hear something new. But let's all pray for Alice now. And um, and then we'll hand over to her. So, Father, thank you for Alice. Thank you for the way that you have spoken to her through the scriptures, that you've spoken to her as she's been praying for us and praying for this message. Thank you that this is what she is hearing from you for us at this moment in time right now. And so we humble ourselves underneath uh, her leadership and we say, Lord, we trust her discernment. We believe that this must be the message you have for us. So clean our ears out, Lord. Soften our hearts. Open us to hear you speak right now through Alice's words. We are open to you, Father. Amen.
1: Thank you. Um, If I said the phrase net worth to you, just, just reflect back a bit what you think that phrase means. The first thing that comes into your head. Total value of someone's wealth. Thank you, Andrew. Anything else? Fiscal value. Woo. It's like the F word. Um, anything else? Sorry. The richest. Yeah. So we immediately think dollar slash insert your currency and numbers, don't we? When we hear net worth... That's what we, what's our instinctive intuitive response and it's utterly deluded. So we are just going to blow that myth apart. I'm being serious and look at someone and think net worth, the person of Jesus. That is the net worth of humans. Okay. So we're just going to move away from the lie that holds our culture in greed, fear and envy and move into the reality that sets us free that human net worth is is the person of Jesus because he paid the price for every human. That's how much a human is worth. So there's a hill we die on as Christians. There's one hill, and it's in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That If that's real, it's all real. If that isn't real and didn't happen in history, then none of it's real. However, flowing out of that hill is a way of life that's utterly distinct, beautiful and prophetically anticipates the new creation. Today we're going to look at one aspect of this diamond which is God's perspective on the economy and we're going to do it with lots of different speakers over the next few weeks and months because we want this to be a live processing as a community on what he has for us now my talk beginning, God's economy of superabundance, I'll reference where I got that from. Um, as Paul helpfully, Paul Golf reflected back to me, um, we, we, the prosperity gospel is flawed and I think he, he was, it's just too small, it's too transactional, it's too limited. What the, the good news that Jesus has for us is an economy of superabundance. So I'm gonna start with how Christians were viewed This is a letter to Diognetus, that really familiar name that no one's ever heard of. And around 130 AD, it's in translation. Everything you say up here from the ancient world is in translation. Remember, we have to do a lot of cross-cultural work. It's in English. It was originally written in Greek. But I want us to feel what Christian communities look like under Roman oppression in the second century, a hundred years after Jesus' historical death and resurrection. If we could go to this. This is someone describing it. And this letter has been incredibly, it's been saved. Don't worry if you don't understand the words. Don't also worry if you can't really see it. Just immerse yourself in this moment and hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the locals in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. And this is the phrase I particularly wanted to emphasize. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but as travellers, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack in all things and yet abound in all. This is an observation of Christian communities in the Greco-Roman context in the first and second century. Christian communities are designed to be pockets of heaven on earth, to reveal the reality that God is real, he's loving, he's good. And for the sake of this talk, he is overwhelmingly, unlimitedly, abundantly generous. He is just... constantly overflowing in generosity towards all creation every day the reason any of us can get up in the morning is he has graciously given us life he's kept us alive and he continues to give us life he continues to sustain the life in this planet this beautiful planet earth he sustains the cosmos he is life and he is abundantly recklessly generous with that life to all people All the time. He has no other way of reading humanity apart from through the lens of abundant generosity. The economy is everywhere in the news at the moment. And this week, for those of us who are interested in politics, I'm a politics junkie, um, there was a mini autumn bill statement which which looked to specifically um, how the government is navigating the economy in our season and so you can see it everywhere obviously most people don't probably read papers anymore but it just didn't look quite the same so just put like smartphones up there in a row Um, the economy dominates the news headlines as factors such as the pandemic and war contribute to a cost of living crisis as it's been called in the UK currently and it's really really important to name where we are at emotionally, psychologically, with this, personally, as followers of Jesus. Some of us might be thinking of our energy and food bills. Some of us might be thinking of rental or mortgage payments. There's a housing crisis. Some of us might be in spiraling credit card debt, and we're we're lying awake at night. Some of us might be thinking about Christmas, the pressure to buy expensive branded presents, particularly regarding young people. In the area of work and business, some of us may be looking for work and just have no hope that there's going to be work for us. Some of us might be thinking about whether our jobs will have to go. And some of us might be thinking, if we run businesses, of having to lay people off. It's really, really challenging. These things really, really are of deep concern to God. What I absolutely love about God is despite and in the midst of his abundant generosity to us, he is so merciful to where we are at in our own anxiety. If we could look at the next. This is a lovely letter in a letter by Peter, one of Jesus' followers, to those who were in intense pressure in the first century, about 60 AD. He simply says in this letter, to believers, cast all your anxieties onto God because he cares for you He's just so tender and kind to those things so i'd love us to have a minute silence now and release our greatest financial anxiety that we have currently now it could be we don't for ourselves but we do for someone else sometimes we carry other people's anxiety too just want to have a minute silence and let's just cast that anxiety onto god I'm sure we're all aware that we read the world through lenses. We all have lenses. And, and what we need are lenses that help us read the world correctly. Perspective. I love this phrase again and again in the Hebrew Bible. It's, we see the, it's seeing things through God's eyes or seeing what's good and evil in our own eyes. There's this fascinating narrative tension about whose lens are we reading the world through. So how do we get God's lens on the economy generally and specifically on our own circumstances and us as a community? The best way to access God's perspective on anything, especially so emotive, is bizarrely enough... Some ancient manuscripts written two to 3,000 years ago in languages that no one really reads or understands anymore that we have come to put into one volume form translated into English and called the Bible. That apparently is the lens through which we can read reality. It requires a lot of cross-cultural work and particularly the bits that we like. It's easy to do cross-cultural work on the bits you don't like because you want to do cross-cultural work on them. But things like love your enemies, which we like, that's a lovely idea, isn't it? Still important to do cross-cultural work because it was two to 3,000 years ago in dead languages. The heart of this manuscript collection is, in the Hebrew Bible, a messianic profile, a profile of an anointed human who is to come, who will do for humanity what we couldn't do for ourselves and will be, for the first time ever in history, the true image-bearer that, that people were designed to be. The claim of the New Testament writers is the historical Jesus of Nazareth has fulfilled the Messianic profile of the Hebrew Bible. That's what the Bible's about, Jesus. We can therefore trust the Bible on issues so personal as the economy— Because we read everything through the generosity of God who came in human form and was executed and physically rose from the dead. We read everything through the lens of the atonement, the death and resurrection of Jesus through Jesus. That's reality. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And truth and reality are the same things we can claim we're post truth, but we're never post reality. Biblically, they're the same thing. He says, I am reality. He's the lens through which we understand reality. And the central premise is God has made humans in his image, but we're naive and we need wisdom to rule. There are two ways we can live. One is in independence, defining what's good and evil in our own eyes, putting our own lens on. And the other one is trusting God's lens and living wise lives because we trust his reading of reality. So here we have, this tension is all the way through the Hebrew Bible. If the word Eden's unhelpful for you because you think of like naked vegans, which is basically what it was about, think of other words that are more helpful for you in our cultural moment. Generally, we've got intimacy with God or independence and loads of images of exile, wandering, excommunication being cut off. So you can feel this difference. There's life and there's death. Life isn't bios, biological life, just that. We've shriveled it to that in our cultural moment. It's Zoe life. It's spiritual life. It's a fullness and abundance of life where we wake up and we are so overjoyed to be human. That's the kind of life that we can expect from God. Blessing is the impartation of that life and then superabundance. Or there's a way we can live as humans where we're biologically alive, but actually we're in existential anguish. We're desolate, we're lonely. We have this experience of exile, curses, the impartation of death, and so on. So you have this this tension. On the brink of the promised land, God instructs a leader called Moses to recover again the way to access life a new Eden a new promised land for the people of God having repeatedly left invitations up until that point and he puts in it systems that regulate the economy such that he re- reveals his vision east of Eden where we are now that there is to be no personal or systemic poverty. I think it's really important we understand this because otherwise we settle for it and justify why it's there. Right at the heart of these instructions, this Torah, he puts systems in place because the ideal is superabundance. But that is actually reality as well. So this is one system he puts in place, the year for cancelling debts. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. And this I've put in bold. There need be no poor people among you. There is to be no poverty among you. There shouldn't be any poverty Those are different ways of saying that same phrase. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. God wanted to show off a new image bearer, the nation, ancient Israelites who would show the world what God is like, that God is real and there is to be superabundance in every area of life. And in this case, specifically in the area of finances, there was to be no poverty. Everyone was to be blessed and overflowing and marked by generosity. The end of this covenant document, Deuteronomy, the fifth scroll in the first five, he gives what was common in ancient Near Eastern covenant treaties clear consequences for obeying or violating the covenant treaty. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. If we go back to other slide, it's a lovely image, the one before. Just think, yeah, this is it. There's, that's what he. This is Moses finishes this document with this, like, quoting, if you like, God's words. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. Again, there's a but, there's always a choice. It's fully consenting humanity's relationship with God. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient And if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship you, I declare to you this day you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. You are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live. Tragically, they go into the land, but the, the, this cycle of the human condition continues. Worship God, blessed, take the blessings, turn away from God, worship other gods, cry out for help and a deliverer, come back to worshipping God again and again and again. This yearning, this desire for Eden, and then actually ultimately a resistance and, and personal idol- and corporate idolatry leading finally to the, that outcome. On that other slide, exile in history, the kingdom of Judah by now reduced, Israel's reduced to one tribe. Judah is exiled to Babylon, the temple's destroyed by the Babylonian Empire 586 BC, and the only people who are allowed to remain in the land of Judah are the poor. Because what's interesting is idolatry, spiritual idolatry, replacing any one system, belief, thing in the God slot, produces social injustice. Spiritual idolatry always produces social injustice. So, three waves were taken off of the kingdom of Judah into exile in Babylon the, the wealthy, enfranchised classes, the royalty, the upper and the middle classes, and the poor are allowed to remain in the land. Because God says, if you don't represent me and allow everyone to prosper, I'll take the king away. I'll do it, because I always hear the cries of the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, and they will be allowed to prosper in the land. That happened in history. The top echelons were taken, the minority whose spiritual idolatry resulted in the oppression of the poor. They were taken out, and the poor allowed to remain. Even when they returned, there was still the sense we're in exile because we're subject to dominant empires. By now, Persia, and then there was Greek influence, and then Roman oppression by the first century. But devout Jews across the diaspora were still believing for an anointed human, a Messiah. The Hebrew Bible by now had come together, and there was this clear portrait that there was a human who was to come, who would do for humanity, as I've said, what they Couldn't do for themselves, who would be the image bearer, who in his suffering would deliver Israel and humanity from their transgressions and bring them through to the abundant life that he always wanted humanity to experience. And the New Testament authors claim, and I believe it's true, that the historical Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled that profile. He was the image and is of the invisible God. And in him, we can recover our true humanity and host heaven on earth as we anticipate the new creation, which he achieved through a physical resurrection from the dead. Before we get to his teachings, which is the nub of it, we follow him, we follow his teachings, we trust him. I'm going to reference a Catholic Marxist critical theorist, Terry Eagleton. It's quite unusual. In the world of critical theory, to have someone who believes in God, so he's a really fascinating uh, person to read. I enjoy reading him, and in this book, Radical Sacrifice, he actually quotes uh, other critical theorists. um, You might recognise Derrida's name, who are at at some level they would they would self-identify as atheists, but they read the New Testament, or should I say, and they read the New Testament, understanding. The extraordinary vision it's casting, which echoes that quote I gave from the letter in the very beginning of the talk. I want, as you read this, to hear hear what, what the invitation is for us as followers of Jesus. And it's right at the heart of this quote that I was given the phrase, economy of superabundance. That's how these readers read the New Testament teachings. Even so, Derrida is right to discern sorry I'll start from there as Matthew's gospel points out there is no distinction in saluting your brothers only Derrida is right to discern what he calls an absolute surplus value in the Christian idea of caritas I just wanted to put that bit in because I've cut it off but Derrida talks about absolute surplus value do you remember that word surplus came up earlier but this is about the surplus that we all have in God. There's all constant abundance in everything God does. There's no great value in loving those who love you in return. As Matthew's gospel points out back to here, there is no distinction in saluting your brothers only. Luke warns against inviting to your feasts only those who might invite you to their dinner table in return. Go out and invite people. I, there's a bit of a principle, really, is the best thing to do, I'm not saying in any way I particularly do this, it's an observation I've made, is to do things where you can't be thanked, where the person it hasn't got capacity to thank you. They could be young, they could be old, they could be vulnerable, they might not be able to speak English, whatever the thing is. That's probably where the kingdom's coming, in that moment where you do something for someone who can't thank you. There is an economy, Derrida marks of the New Testament, but it is an economy that integrates the renunciation of a calculable remuneration. Those are long words, but basically you give without expecting return. That's the economy of the New Testament. It's not a shrewd analysis. If I do that, they'll do that for me. It's just I give without expecting return because I have a heavenly father who just abundantly, relentlessly gives to me all the time. One is expected to turn the other cheek, return good for evil, bless those who revile us, give away one's cloak as well as one's coat, walk two miles rather than one, forgive 77 times. These spendthrift acts are eschatological, in other words, they're new creation forms, they're just excess, they're absurd, they're over the top, they foreshadow a future in which all this has surpassed our systems now, for what Paul Recur terms an economy of superabundance. We are anticipating that is new creation reality and we live in that now as we live in this age, in the groaning, in the labour pains for that age to come. Those who are already camped out on the far edge of history, taking their cue from, living, from the future and living in imminent expect, expectation of death are freed from the need to haggle and negotiate. They can be lavish in self-expenditure. Those who live, this is a prophetic way of life, as if the future has already arrived, as if when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, new creation was inaugurated and we're waiting for the consummation. He puts it here, I'm taking it out. In in the touch of surrealist madness and the casual way with material necessities, we proclaim the imminence of the reign of justice since history is drawing to a close, there is no reason not to give without reserve. I want us to feel the invitation that I think we're on the, on the brink of as a community here at Hope. The invitation to be outrageously generous in a time and a cultural moment where people are crippled by anxiety, envy and greed. To be a place of overflow, to be a place of generosity to be a place that shows the goodness of God, that heaven has come to earth and there is hope of new creation. Let's look at how Jesus encourages us to live. This is, I've, I've just amalgamated some, some of his teachings from Matthew, from Luke, put in a little bit from Paul at the end. We're going to be looking at this diamond of God's perspective on the economy from loads of different perspectives. So this is just so brief. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who does what is done in secret, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So don't worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, those are people who don't know God's love. Run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. That, if I had to say a mantra for my life, the thing that's gripped me and guides me is that teaching. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then from Luke, Jesus is quoted as saying, give and it will be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for with the measure you use it will be measured to you just blows apart materialism in that in this phrase life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions that's just epic isn't it just drop that bomb in there for anyone who believes there's life in the accumulation of things of people of followers of stuff just life doesn't consist there we will never access the abundant life if that's our if that's our mentality if that's the lie we believe don't be afraid little flock for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom it's really important you understand this is a minority of minorities god is speak jesus is speaking to he's not speaking to the privileged elite in greco roman world he's speaking to jewish people under roman oppression and more than that jewish people who are thinking jesus is the messiah and he says to them you are powerful. He says to the widow, you're powerful, you can give. He says to all of us, don't be afraid. You've been given the entire kingdom. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's probably a very British way of saying it. Delighted to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. For where where no thief comes and near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and then this is paul doing some application work we'll do a bit more application in acts and paul's letters so this is just a little a little quote from him because i couldn't resist it remember this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously god loves a hilarious giver and i said last week It's actually cheerful, but in the message version, it's hilarious. And I think that's uh, that's a verse I live by as well. The hilarity of God's generosity, because it tramples on the myths of consumerism and materialism and values people as they're supposed to be. And there's just an unbelievable joy in seeing the world as it really is like that. Forget the reward that people give you. The reward that comes from within when we read reality correctly is it's hilarious. That God tells people, minorities of minorities, you can give because actually you're actually in charge. You've been given the kingdom. You have authority to rule and I'm recovering it through you. And God is able, hear the words of abundance in Paul's language here. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. There's so many superlatives there. We go to the next slide. So basically, I talked about there's a God slot for want of a very that's really poor word choice. And we're all basically craving identity provision and protection. That's just like we need it. And there's a slot that we put people or things or identities or ideologies up there to deliver protection provision and identity that will always lead to exile death destruction even if it looks seductive and compelling at the time which it always does otherwise we wouldn't fall for it it never looks stupid it always looks incredible it always looks shiny what we have to do as christians is go to our own gethsemanes and say not my will but yours be done Actually, you are in that. You are that space. I go to you for protection, provision, and identity. And confident that the abundant overflow of life, everlasting, will flow from that place. That's a repentance. It's a metanoia. It's a change of mindset. Who's there? Actually, not in our lip confession, not what we say, but in our heart, who's delivering us identity, provision, and protection, or what? What is or who is the source of that? And that needs to be something we wrestle. It's the deepest, most painful and excruciating and real and human wrestle we'll ever have. Is who's in that place. Who's in that place? Knowing that after the death comes the resurrection. If God's in that place, we move into abundance. So I'm going to sum up Jesus' teachings now. Give in secret worship and serve God only, prioritise God's kingdom interests over our own interests in our spending and saving habits, sell our possessions and give to the poor. That wasn't to someone who had a stronghold with money. Oh, those poor people over there. It was the little flock. Do you remember? He says, don't be afraid, little flock. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and then give hilariously. So God's perspective on, on the economy is he is the only and endless source of abundant, human, and all forms of provision. He is it. He is an overflowing cup that will never, ever run dry. A provision of supply, of goodness, of abundance, of thoughtfulness, of care, of giving us exactly what we need, of knowing us, of intimacy. It runs on, he runs on, and on, and on. When we enter into that, when we trust that we enter into that way of life. When we resist that, he still is kind and gracious and relentlessly pursues us all our days, but will respect us. He will give us that space and respect our withholding. And we will find internally desolation and exile and existential anguish. We will live with the consequences of our independence. The way we access it is through initiative. So he doesn't say, Wait on me, I'll provide, then be generous. When I'm rich, then I'll give. Do you notice he speaks to the poor and he says to them, You're powerful. You can give and it will be given to you. You can seek first the kingdom. You can sell your possessions. Do you think they even had possessions? He believes in them enough. He speaks to us to to bring our initiative. And this was before we had the confidence we have now in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was still alive. They were still working out who he was. And he still spoke reality into them. You are powerful. You can give. You can sell. You can seek. The initiative is on us. He's graciously full of initiative all the time. On this one, the initiative is on us because it's our response to his extraordinary generosity. So this is not to say as well that living by faith is a sort of floaty thing you do and hope that, you know, God turns up. There are systems we can put in place, and Christians and people who've loved this way of life, who may not identify as a Christian, there are systems that can be put in place that are generous. I gave one example last week, I'll give it again this week. There were widows of Scottish ministers in a particular denomination who did not have any support and provision when their husbands ministers died and they became widows they were scottish widows so some people set up a pension fund for them you might have heard of it it's called scottish widows and it's a global pension fund now because someone put a system in place they took initiative and thought these people need something and they set up a pension fund to provide for this vulnerable community pension funds are complex All of our pension funds may be dealing with the arms trade, which is deeply uncomfortable. I'm not in any way making this shiny. But I'm saying at some level in history, someone, a group of people saw something and put something in place that meant people were provided for. Do you know there is so much creativity and power and initiative in this room? There is so many ideas we have, so many businesses, so many things we are designed and God-given to set up to help eradicate poverty that's still the ideal it's not changed when people quote that jesus says the poor you'll always have with you he's doing a little hint because the other end of the expression he's quoting is you can help them whenever you want the poor you always have with you is not an excuse not to help it's an invitation to continually help because he still remembers his vision of eden to new eden to new creation to heaven on earth where there is no poverty And everyone is marked by superabundance. So we're finishing with two things. This is really slightly embarrassing because God's overwhelming, extraordinary generosity. This feels really trivial to give this little example. But I want to give you a little example in our life where we've tasted God's hilarity on this issue. And then uh, encourage everyone here to do the same. So a few years ago, we're in financial difficulty and I had this three volume edition of Emily Dickinson's works, which most of you here like don't even know who that person is. And secondly, who cares about a three volume (laughs) literary edition with words on it, hardcover. Anyway, we're in financial difficulty. I felt this prompt, sell that and give give to the poor, give the money away, just do the thing, the exact thing. I said, no cross-cultural work there. Just hear it in English and just do it. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Said it to Chris. We thought it was hilarious. It just felt hilarious. What a hilarious thing to do in a world of accumulation and identity through stuff. And in whatever industry it is, it's the thing you're, you have your identity in. To, to just sell it and give the money away. Especially in a position, especially in a time of financial challenge. Anyway, we did that and laughed. And it was hilarious. And I just encourage you all to do that. So that is our first action as a community. I mentioned this last week, is in your households, if you live with people who aren't Christians, I am convinced they're generous because we're all image bearers and we all want to be generous. So whoever you're living with, maybe ask God, if you can, that language is okay. Or just process together, what is something in our house that we can sell and give the money away. Just like a literally a tangible thing. Is there something in our house that we have that we could just sell that and give the money away? Now, we've got a little idea that bubbled up because we kind of process it together in this week since the last time I gave this talk, the last week, um, that might be interesting to chew on. So we do give in secret. But we are a community on a journey. So if anyone, as you do that in your household, kind of has some idea that might be a bit bigger or different, please feed it in. If God's saying something bigger than that that act in our household, but that's where we're going to begin, is every one of us to believe God is abundantly good and provides everything and ask him if there's anything in our homes that we can sell and give the money away. And the second thing is, and in that is to ask who he wants us to give to. That it's relational, it's personal, it's connected. And remember the thing that blew my mind about Jesus and still does is he never ever patronizes anyone. He always empowers people. So so when we do this, we think who how is this going to be powerful for someone? How's this going to be empowering for someone? Because two things happen when we realise That if we want to find God, we go to the poor. The first thing is, he really is there. He really is there. And the second thing is, of course, is we encounter our own poverty and our own need. And it's a level playing field at the foot of the cross. And then finally, in our own lives, God wants us to be fruitful. Really, really fruitful. And one of the images he uses is he, he tweaks, he prunes so that we'll be more fruitful is I think it would be good for us to ask God, what's the thing he wants to prune in this area in our life? Just clip off so that we're more fruitful and we're more of a household and community marked by God's economy of superabundance.